0: The subject I want to speak about tonight is cultivating the perception of impermanence, anicca. As you know, how frequently the Buddha spoke about the centrality of really understanding the fact of impermanence, one of the three Dhamma doors. I spoke the other night about the five aggregates in terms of seeing anatta, the insubstantiality of, of sense of self. That's one dhamma Really getting and understanding the truth of dukkha, like the first noble truth is another dhamma And also then sometimes uh, the perception keying into the truth of impermanence, anicca, the three characteristics. Of course, we all... As we proceed with our spiritual journey we're going to see and understand all three of those because that's just three different aspects of how things are. It's not like it's some insight that changes anything except how we relate to life. But it's said that sometimes a person might uh, just more naturally tend to recognize, have an accurate perception of one or the other of these three. But, so tonight we'll talk about anicca, the power of the perception of it. And the thing that, um, this this fall I did about a month self-retreat, did a few self-retreats last year, I took a sabbatical from teaching. So I did about a month self-retreat in a really beautiful spot. And for some reason this uh, sense of of impermanence and the sometimes it's kind of like terrifying in the implacability of it, that this is how it is and nothing can change that. But also it so opens when, when the mind isn't caught in the clinging and the resistance, really just recognizing this is how it is, it opens us into this like tenderness of the immediacy of this moment of life because it's all there is. It's so poignant and And so beautiful at the same time, my experience. And this one very famous um, haiku kept running through my mind and heart that whole month. I'm I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Isa, a Japanese priest from the 18th century. This dewdrop world, I should stop and say, for those whose English isn't your first language, do you know what dew is? (laughs) That little, very subtle piece of moisture in the morning on the grass that just vanishes as soon as the sun comes out, okay? I learned this from my friend Fred in Switzerland. He says, you say these things, there's the one word that's key, nobody understands it, and the whole thing is wasted. So (laughs) now I'm learning. (laughs) But then he says, you always pick the wrong word that you think they don't understand. (laughs) What to do about that, I can't do anything. Okay, now I spoil the mood completely. So, but anyway, this kept going through my mind. (laughs) He said, this dewdrop world is a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet, I just love that. It is a dewdrop world. It's vanished as soon as the sun comes out. And yet, it's so beautiful. It's so poignant. It's so tender. It said that he wrote that after the death of his young daughter. Mm-hmm. So this opening to the perception of impermanence is really what frees our hearts and minds from the stasis of clinging. And it's, it's not like a dread, horrible thing. It opens us to the wonder and the mystery at the same time. But that's what's interesting. It's not that of the three characteristics, intellectually, when we speak about them, impermanence is the seems to me the most intellectually obvious, easy to understand. It's, probably no one here is going to argue about it, right? But there's some way knowing it intellectually isn't freeing us from clinging. Or am I wrong about that? No? <laughs> so what is it that changes? and this is where he talks about the perception he said this is the buddha bhikkhus when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated this perception eliminates all sensual desire it eliminates all lust for existence for becoming for turning into some new form in mind or body it eliminates all ignorance it uproots all conceit, I am. Those four things mean complete awakening. The perception of impermanence when it's developed and cultivated. So I'm taking that as the key for what to, the way I want to talk about it tonight is how we can begin to develop or continue to develop this perception. Because it's not that things are permanent, and if we have some kind of insight, then things start to change. Right? This is how it already is. So how come we don't see it? Why is it so hard to perceive this? So, on some level, this is the nature of all insight. It's not creating a new reality but it's shifting our inaccurate, confused, basically wrong perception of what's occurring, of what we're experiencing. Because how we perceive, we've talked about how we perceive, is how we think about things, how we think about things is is then the views, the construction our mind puts onto life of thoughts, and then that is how we're going to respond to experience. So even if intellectually we you know everything's changing, when we have a really hard, difficult mood, everything's changing, but not this. This is going to be here forever, right? That's just kind of how it feels. And then we start reacting as if it's going to be here forever, because that's the perception in that moment. So, the nature of insight is not that actuality changes, but perception shifts. The Buddha spoke about three, I, I don't know if anyone said this or not, to talk the three different levels of wisdom, of Panya, they're all wisdom. And we're taking in, we're working on all three levels, you know, at various times. It's not like it's just linear. But so the first level is the level of, of it's heard in, in, into English, it would be heard understanding, understanding that that someone says, or we read, or that we intellectually take in. So when you read, yes, everything's impermanent, that's heard understanding, or I say that. And that's not nothing. I mean, that's useful. We can sometimes use those thoughts just to help us remember when you're in the middle of that really difficult, horrible mood and your mind goes, oh, yeah, right, I think I heard somewhere that everything's impermanent, you know. It doesn't really shift our understanding, but it might just give us the strength or the courage to hang with it a little bit more, you know. So the, that's the first level of wisdom. And that's important. Without that, there's no right view. There's no wise understanding. The second level is chinta um, uh, mayapanya, which is really using our, our, our thinking wise reflection our intellectual understanding it's like and so it's not to throw that out we kind of think about it everything really is impermanent and we might intellectually go through the day and it's not really the gut level perception but we're kind of saying to ourselves oh yes the leaves on the trees are turning yellow everything's impermanent things change now that's true and that's a reflection that can help us come back into our own experience. But even that, unless it's on the third level of, oh yes, the autumn, the leaves are falling, the leaves die, they go to the, you know, and we can say the whole thing. And it's like, okay, maybe it mellows us out a little bit. But it isn't really the depth of insight into anicca and permanence that really shifts our understanding in a moment. You know what I mean. It's important, and we really use this. It kind of, kind of softens us up, you know, <laughs> to start to maybe perceive things in a more accurate way. And the, the third level, and this is really the level of, of insight—not thinking, but just an aha moment—is when the conditions are ripe or right, such that the perception actually shifts, and we have. Little or big insights, frequently about all kinds of things. So, in terms of uh, impermanence, here it can be anything can be going on. It's not that you have to be in some kind of deep state of practice. It can it can be with anything. But suddenly, you know, you're 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 washing your hands, and and as you're washing your hands, you just see the soap disappearing, and oh my gosh, everything just disappears. Everything just you know, and it could sound really silly when you're saying it but when it goes in, it's like on a a cellular, a visceral level. Do you know what I mean? You've had insights like that. Oh, wow. And then the mind will think about it, and we'll, we'll talk, and that's fine, knowing the mind's thinking. Usually two thoughts is enough. You know, we got it. Okay, you don't have to like write a novel about it, but the energy of the insight usually goes into thinking. But you can feel, wow, yeah, everything's changing. And it's, if someone came to you and said, that's not true, you don't have to get in an argument, you know, you see, the perception has aligned in that moment. Oh, that's really how it is. Of course, as with everything, perception lasts a fraction. So again, we may, that goes in, that makes a difference. It has an effect on our, on our understanding going forward, on our mind stream. But it doesn't mean that once we have an insight of, impermanence or anything, then from that moment on, every single moment is going to be accurate perception, right? Because what blocks it? We know our old friends, especially delusion. Delusion leading to greed, leading to aversion, resistance. So this is what I want to talk about, just how we can explore this in this situation we have here, which is a great situation For exploring this. (laughs) The perception of Anicca is so liberating, as the Buddha said, because in that moment, just in that moment of that accurate perception, the heart, the mind, is liberated in that moment. It's freed from clinging. Because clinging doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't arise in a moment of really recognizing that there's no solidity, no stability anywhere. It just doesn't make sense. And then with that wisdom, the heart, the mind, you really get that that sense of freedom, of liberation from the, the constriction, the limitation that comes with the trying to hold on, with the trying to push away, with the trying to keep everything kind of in its nice little box so we can feel safe and secure. So I wanted to talk about Um, three different ways that came into my mind that moha delusion uh, manifests in ways that that we can explore it here just this is to be interested in ways that it manifests a kind of um, block or not allow the accurate perception of impermanence and so sometimes we can see these manifestations coming up too and again as we talk about these as i talk about forms of delusion or clinging. Remembering, just to plop it in there, that these are exploring these with, with interest, with wise attitude. These are not three more ways of delusion that show what a really hopeless, stupid person you are, and you might as well give it up. This is like, wow, let's see how this works. It's really fascinating. And if you think, you know, you're going to see Iniccia once and then the delusion's going to stop, hello, wake up, what are we all doing here, you know, why are we spending our life? This is a lifetime process. And if we're interested in it, and I've talked to a lot of people in the meetings, not everyone and no one all the time, but quite a few people are just starting to get this sense of interest in seeing what's going on. Like someone said, you know, aversion comes up in my mind and it's like, okay, it's aversion, it's the next thing arising. You can kind of watch it. So... Just to put that in there. So, the three ways I want to talk about is a, a kind of denial, avoidance of change, or what comes with change. The other one is um, the misperception, recognizing wrongly, even when we're present. And the third, and you can see they all link together, the third is simple inattention, lack of continuity. The inattention, we just don't notice what on some level... <sighs> we're not keyed up to notice. And that actually hides the perception of impermanence. So, just to start by talking about denial. And this is a bit coming off of um, what I was talking about last week. It's not a quiz, I don't really expect you to remember, but I was talking about um, the the two darts, the two arrows, and that Buddha saying the habit of our mind when unpleasant experience arises uh, is resistance. That comes to be the underlying habit of the mind, resistance. So that's denial, climate kind of change. And then under the habit the influence of the habit of resistance, the other habit that comes up is is clinging, looking for pleasure. So that's the second the second way the misperception, looking for something to make us happy where it can't happen. So this is one of the ways on a very subtle and profound level that this habit of resistance to unpleasant and clinging to the pleasant is actually is not only just about it feels uncomfortable in the moment this is one of the habits that actually obscures the recognition of reality that actually in that obscuration of things as they are is what keeps us wandering in confusion and suffering. So on this level, the habit of resistance and clinging, it's not like it's bad or it's not just about big things. On these subtle levels, it's really deep. So this is such a great opportunity just to explore it while we're here in the silence together. So just to say a little bit, this is from my experience, the sense of the resistance I feel of what I want to, the way I want to talk about it anyway, is that one of the resistances I think that comes up, and this can be on the the macro level of change too, as well as the smaller one, is just the sense of seeing things that we are attached to, things that we love, particularly people that we love or situations that are important to us, when we see them vanish, go away, it for most of us, opens us into a great deal of sadness or sense of loss, grief, you know, and then what can come in so quick in the sense of the denial is that sense of not really deeply understanding the first noble truth. So the loss comes, the grief comes, and there's that sense in the back, well, something's wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. I shouldn't be feeling this. Or basically, I don't want to feel it, is basically what it is. I'm feeling grief, and I don't want to feel the grief. So, therefore, there's something wrong with the way the universe is working, you know. They shouldn't have gotten sick. I shouldn't have lost my job. This person shouldn't have died, you know. And the denial, I think, is really of simply opening with tenderness to the pain, to the sadness the sense of grief, or loss, or change, or confusion, or instability, and really seeing this is part of our human life. When we talk about opening to the truth of impermanence and really freeing our hearts and minds from this confusion, from always reacting, responding in a way that's inaccurate, sure, maybe I have no idea what an arhan experiences. Maybe they don't really experience grief, but they do notice absence. There's some sutta, I'm paraphrasing because I couldn't find it, after when the Buddha was really old and his two closest disciples who'd been with him all the time, Sariputta and Moggallana, had both passed away. And he's looking out at the assembly and he's saying, you know, this assembly is empty, you know, it is empty of Sariputta and Moggallana. So, like, he noticed the difference. He wasn't weeping and wailing, but he noticed the difference. But another sutta that I actually love, because it really touches me, is from Ananda, who I think somebody mentioned, you know, the Buddha's, the Buddha's attendant and cousin for his last 25 years. And he is a really lovable figure throughout all the suttas, all the discourses. And he's in very many of them, because every discourse that starts, thus have I heard, is meant to be having been recited by Ananda. Who was with the Buddha for 25 years, had an incredible memory, and remembered every discourse that he heard. So he, he pops up a lot. But he's very human. He's kind of like the human link in, you know. Sometimes he would make mistakes, he, and the Buddha would kind of chide him, Haven't I told you, Ananda? You know, would come and he was very kind, very inclusive. So, in terms of being the Buddha's attendant, it wasn't like you see with with some kind of masters, the attendants like trying to keep the crowd away, you know. But Ananda was there because he loved the Dhamma. So his job was to help everyone who wanted to hear the Dhamma come and hear the Buddha. He was a great supporter of the nuns. He spent a lot of time teaching the nuns, sharing the nuns. Anyway, I'm getting off on a whole other talk. So, but he's a kind of our way in. So there's one lovely sutta, the, the Parinibbana Sutta, which is very long. But at this point, the Buddha has told his his disciples that he's going to die in a certain amount of time, and then they're talking about other things. And then it says, all of a sudden, Ananda left, and the Venerable Ananda went into his lodging and stood lamenting, leaning on the doorpost. Alas, I am still a learner with much to do, and the teacher is passing away who was so compassionate to me. Andy Olensky, who's a Pali scholar, who was the director of the, the study center for many years, told me that this, that, that, which I didn't know, that this is a, a very well-known image in Buddhist art, iconography, the sense of Ananda leaning against the doorframe and, and weeping at the coming loss. And the Buddha was still around at this point, mind you, at the coming loss. And so I feel, I, I love it that that's in the suttas, because it that this is part of being human if we a uh, shy away from feeling that we'll never see things as they are so really of course it goes on the lord the buddha inquired where ananda was and they told him so he told the monk to bring ananda here and when he came he said um, enough ananda do not weep and wail have i not already told you that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable subject to separation and becoming other. So how could it be, Ananda, since whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay, how could it be that it should not pass away? But he's not saying this like you stupid jerk. He's saying this, you know, out of love and wisdom and compassion. This is how it is. This is how it is. Let it in let it in. And then he went on to really praise Ananda and bring up his confidence in his understanding and in his practice and saying, continue to practice and you will come to full understanding. So he's not like this, he's really saying, this is how it is. You have the confidence, you have the understanding, you have the ability, keep practicing. And so I just love that because I feel like that's saying, yes, this is how it is for us. Don't run away from it. Don't hide from it. This is part of life. Personally, I found, yeah, personally, that even opening to the grief of a loved one's death without resistance kind of deepened the sense of love and connectedness. Like, some, some five, about five, six years ago, my younger sister died quite suddenly and relatively unexpectedly. I was her closest person, so really, it hit me harder than I expected, because my parents had died in the last the few years before that, but it was just different. But it was, so, it was so interesting to me. I couldn't have talked about it like this the couple years after, but it's kind of, you know, more just part of my psyche now. But it was like, so it had happened. There's no way to argue with that that had happened. You, know, you can't kind of say oh no or maybe or you know we could change it <laughs> there's nothing to do this is how it is and so somehow my mind was just my heart was just yes this is how it is and was just able to be for quite some months totally present and so like at times this really strong sense of grief or sorrow however it would just well up in the middle of whatever I was doing you know how it is and the heart and mind was just yeah this is how it is now and it would just really let it be there. It would move through, it would last a little while, it would be gone, but I f- then it would, you know, be gone, it would come a few times a day or however much. But the sense of, of the clarity of, no, this is just how it is. And also that it's fine, feeling the grief. Actually, I felt that it came connected with the deep love I felt for her. And if trying to shut it out was like trying to shut out the whole, the whole world in a way. And I feel like I learned a lot about just the human nature of, of change, of death, of coming together and going to part. How could it be otherwise? The only way it could be otherwise is if if I went first. You know, it's like there's, there's, there's no other way it's going to happen. And yet this sense of subtle denial and fear of just feeling is something that, that can keep us locked. The Buddha often used, you know, on opening to the reality of death is a powerful teaching tool. I mean, there's many stories like that. Just one brief one, I'm sure you know, it's the most famous one, of the, the woman who came to him, whose her young child had died, and she was just completely distraught, and begging the Buddha to somehow bring the child back to life. And he said, okay, if you go to a house and collect like a cup of sesame seeds from houses that have not experienced death, and of course she went in every single house, had experienced death, and after however long, you know, the mind gets it. She comes back and goes, Okay, I get it. And then the heart mind is open to really hearing the truth, and the Buddha could teach, the Buddha could share. So okay, I'll tell one more story about this. Because it's just it's just life. Some years ago, I don't know, ten years ago, I'm not sure. Uh, I was teaching a retreat in uh, the Sagain Hills in Burma with friends uh, and also Santa Ulakana. So um, it was uh, all Western yogis, about 30 yogis, but with a Burmese teacher and us, me and another teacher and translators, uh, Western translators. Anyway, so we're friends with people there. There's, there's three nunneries in a row next door, and we're friends with those nuns. And so one day, we were, and it's right on the, on the Airwadi River, kind of up high, but you walk down to the road, you're walking along the, the river. So we were just out, me and the other teachers and the translator friends. We were just out walking along the river, and we got down, about two nunneries down, and there's a, a little... A huge gathering of the whole group of the nunnery and some monks and a lot of the people who live there standing by the river said, Well, what's going on? And they said three young novices, which is little boy monks, like 10, 11, 12 years old, had gone out in the river to play. I forget if they were in a boat or playing or what. And somehow one of them had drowned. And he was, the rest of them, the other two had lived there for a long time, but this one who had drowned had just come last week from far away and he wasn't used to being in the river and I guess he didn't know how to swim. So everyone was standing there and they recovered, they recovered his body. And then, so then the learning is what happened next. So they had to send for his family, which was like that way, the there wasn't cell phones yet there. It was a long journey to get his family, and then they had to take buses to come, so it's gonna take 24 to 48 hours for his family to get there. So the, the nuns and the monks from his monastery came down just up the hill, and they took his little body up to a big sala right on the side of the road there. A sala is like a big open, it's like a room without walls with a big roof and big teak pillars and big open space. And they set up a really lovely little bed and they put him in clean robes and brought down uh, nice blankets. And then all the nuns and monks, and a lot of the nuns are really young. This, there's this one little nun. At that point, she was probably around six or seven in I mean, we, we know, her, know her now. Now she's 16, 17. It's great to see. She came running up to us and um, was holding our hand and just and Jake was with us. He could talk to her. He speaks Burmese. And so she was part of it, too. They didn't say, oh, you're too little. Go, go hide in the back. So they put him on the breath. And then everyone from the community, the, the lay people, the monks, the nuns, they all kind of set up like a wake, what we would call a wake. And they were, were staying with him for the 24, the 48 hours and chanting suttas and metta. And, you know, they would take turns. But it was the whole community. Just staying there with him, including the little nunlets and the little, the little novices, and then the two little boys who had been with him. They also took care of them, you know. They made they, they, the monks came down and took care of them and made sure that they were okay and not too lost and blame whatever you know. And it was just this sense of the whole community coming around and saying, "Yes, this is what happens, and here we are dealing with it." And one of my Western friends, she said i'm 47 years old i've never seen a dead body before and i thought yeah kind of how it is here in this culture and so that i just thought that was a, a beautiful i mean it was sad it was really sad and even i just saw anyeti last year you know and we were walking not that we can talk to each other but we were walking right by the river and we both kind of like pointed and con- were just reminding each other of that time so it has a, a resonance you know But this sense of, this is how life is, let's see it, let's not hide from it and feel the sadness. That's part of how life is. So we don't stop caring, but we can respond much more appropriate way. So that's the denial piece. And then as I was talking last week, out of the denial or out of I shouldn't feel sad or this is too much, you know, we tend to cling as we know. So one time, I ask myself sometimes, why? You know, why do we cling, what are we clinging to? What are we trying to, like this sense of instability, something about it, I don't know about your mind, but my mind, which of course doesn't exist, but the mind seems to hate it. It hates instability. Unless you don't like what's happening, then it wants instability, and it doesn't seem to notice that the two different ways. But just this sense of shaky ground, the sense of not knowing what's happening. Have you noticed that in your practice? We want to like get it all figured out. Tell me how to do it right. So it'll always be nice, balanced, open, choiceless awareness and no striving. How do I get it so it stays like that, right? Aren't we? That's what we think we're here trying to do. But it's so poignant. We, our strategy for happiness, cling to an experience, cling to ideas, cling to views, to views of ourself. Clinging to views of our personality, even when we think we have a disgusting personality. Still, it's my personality and we hold on to it. Views about anything. This sense of clinging, like how to find stability in an unstable world and not quite noticing that it's the clinging that's creating the dissonance, the ill-at-easeness, the suffering. I read... Well, um, oh, I read... I, this was on the public radio a few years ago, not that long ago. Well, a few years, they were talking about the, um, I guess it was a financial program or it was in news, but they were talking about the European debt crisis, very seriously talking about it and saying, you know, how, talking about the stock market and saying what effect the European debt crisis would have on politics and governments. And it said, um, politics is being driven by the stock market And the markets hate uncertainty. So they pressure this or that government, this or that political figure to stay or resign or do this or that so that, you know, there won't be uncertainty in the stock market. This was said with all utmost seriousness. (laughs) Stock market, uncertainty, that goes together, right? uncertainty, uncertainty in the stock market go together. The stock market uncertainty is like an oxymoron. It doesn't happen. They said this with all seriousness. If this figure resides, if this government does that, then the market will be happy because there will be no uncertainty. And I thought, this is, this is you know, how we live in this world. We don't even notice when we're doing that for ourselves. Our response to the unreliability of life. Hold on, hold on. This is a fragment of a poem. It's a long poem, so this is just a fragment of a poem by Galway Canal, an American poet, called Little Sleep's Head Sprouting Hair in the Moonlight. You scream, waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up, and hold you up in the moonlight. You cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I think, you think, I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars, even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I have stood by as you told the flower, Don't grow old, don't die, little Maud. Perhaps this is the reason you cry. This the nightmare you wake screaming from, being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. And so that's how it is. And sadness is okay. And actually, when we're not trying to stop from falling or not resisting the trembling, there's so much beauty and love and tenderness for the moment when our minds and hearts become more flexible, more moving, not, you know, in this, oh no, it's going to go, it's going to go. It hasn't gone right now. It's just this. There's so much tenderness and freedom in that from the Buddha, The search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. One abides in peace who does not abide anywhere. This comes back to also, there's not one to abide. And it's the clinging that makes us looking for somewhere to abide. So one way we can open... Just to remind ourselves, it's a practice Ajahn Chah mentions often, it's just going through the day when something comes up, you just remind yourself, this is uncertain. This is uncertain. Not some heavy, oh my God, this is uncertain. But just when you notice your mind saying, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and then, oh yeah, this is uncertain. That's all. And then we go on. I think what's more amazing is how much things seem to keep on going the way we think they're going to. You know? Oh, yeah, this is uncertain. Just not to put that clinging in. As we saw, anything can occur in the next moment. So then the other moha I want to talk about is the misperceiving, where we think of impermanence, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, then suddenly something can happen in the next moment. You know, someone's here, 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 suddenly they die. But that's the misperception. We're we're not perceiving the um, momentariness of change. As the Dalai Lama said, the sense of impermanence is not that something arises it exists it exists it exists and then it goes away that is not perceiving accurately that's a misperception that's perceiving this whole sense of permanence in that it's hanging out for a while and then it goes away not really seeing the constant nature the momentariness of change someone mentioned today and it's a good in in terms of uh, in our practice, in terms of seeing, for example, when we're not quite mindful of seeing, it's one of the things that gives us a sense of permanent, the room and the people, and it's the same as the last time, and seeing's always occurring. But there can be a moment when you tune in, and every second, the actual seeing is different. You know, as you're walking, it's different images, different images, different images, changing every second. But mostly, we don't perceive that. And it's not that we're going to go through life perceiving, you know, a little layers. I mean, you can't function that way. But there's moments when the perception shifts, when we see, oh yeah, it is like that. It isn't like it's just all the same, the same, and all of a sudden it crumbles, you know. <laughs> it's not like that. A friend was telling me about um, watching... Uh, a time-lapse video you know time-lapse right where you take a a, so it's a time-lapse video of a flower bulb that was planted and then growing you've probably seen stuff like that and so when you see that starting from the bulb and then the little shoot comes up through the earth and it grows into the leaves and the flower and then the flower decays and falls and and you just see it's moving the whole time when the time is speeded up there's where can you stop it and say now that's just a flower existing now that's just a bulb existing separate from anything else self-existent it's not every single instant it's changing the conditions are changing and the the so called self-existent thing is changing and there's no way to just stop and say it's static there's nowhere to land and say now it's going to be like this even for a second and then As we start to turn around, someone was years ago said on a retreat, oh, she said, I finally got it. I've been seeing for years that everything around me is changing, but suddenly I see, oh, that includes me. (laughs) So it's not only like some static me is watching, you know, the bulb growing and everything changing, but the the so-called me, as Guy was talking about the other, is also... Constantly changing the five aggregates arising and shifting and changing and coming together in different ways. That's all that's going on. So our part of our misperception is that we don't recognize that aspect. That's why, I mean, and it's true on some level we need to some sense of steadiness to get through the day. Absolutely. But one of the great things about being on a retreat like this, at times when you don't have very many responsibilities. And, you know, you can even just sit in your room if it gets all kind of too weird for a little while. You can just kind of sit in your room for a while and watch molecules dance. It won't stay that way very long, believe me. But (laughs) just You don't have to worry. You don't have to, like, hold it all together so much, you know. So one way we don't perceive accurately, then, is inattention. Nisargadatta Maharaj said, We miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. I love that. (laughs) That's what's going on all the time. We miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. This is why we put so much um, emphasis on gently cultivating the sense of continuity just whenever you remember bringing the mindful awareness in whatever's going on. Because lack of continuity is something that really masks a Nietzsche, that really hides impermanence, because we don't really see the constant shifting and change. We might notice something's here, and then later we might notice it's gone, or we might just be more caught up in another thing, we don't quite see the whole process well we, we absolutely don't see the whole process without some continuity of mindfulness even you know in in chunks a great place to explore that here on retreat is with um, your mood with your sense of sakaya ditti with your sense of your personality right with the moods that come through the day how many moods how many emotions have you had today you probably didn't count them more than one if Joseph was here, we have a joke, but he's not here, so. <laughs> one, I'll tell you. One time we were teaching a retreat together, and after we left uh, the sitting, and he said, Carol, how many emotions did you have in that sitting? I go, I don't know. i must say mental states, not just strong emotions, but mental states. I don't know, I don't know 15, 20, something like that. I said, how about you? He goes, I don't think I had any maybe one this is like this is like a, a real joke between us now all the time I go, how many metal states did you have <laughs> so we're all different <laughs> there's not a right way but noticing <laughs> how the lack of continuity masks impermanence so we all know and i really strong emotions here and we think now it's going to be like this forever you know that we think that then somehow it goes away. Or I think I mentioned in another talk, someone comes in and said, oh my God, I was so upset. Really, the whole day? No, well, not this time, not that time, not when I was sleeping, not when I was bathing, but it comes down to like one sitting or a sitting and a walking. But then the mind is thinking, and this is three days later, I was so upset. And it uh, assumes a permanence. We assume permanence so much of the time. A story from a friend of mine, she uh teaching i was teaching a retreat at spirit rock and and, and she was cooking there at that was a long time ago and she was telling me she, she's a you know a long time meditator and she said she saw herself and other people saw her as aversive type personality so she's been having this conversation with the other cooks and they're saying yeah you're really aversive and she thought yeah i am really aversive but then she had a day to just be silent on retreat so she was sitting and walking and she said i'm just going to really be very steady and mindful and watch the mental state, watch the mind, just be really continuous. And she said it was amazing because she said the idea she had that she was really clinging to is I'm aversive. And when we're not steady with our mindfulness, which is just noticing what's happening, when we're not being steady, we tend to fall into what I call selective perception, We have a view, I'm aversive, and then the selective perception tends to notice everything that substantiates that view. Have you noticed that? When you're in a bad mood, everything seems to prove, yes, I am in a bad mood, and this is why I ought to be, whatever. We don't notice the other stuff. So she was just being steady, and she said, let's see, I have it written down here, she said she noticed, oh... When I look carefully, there were many moments of her mind that were kind, that were generous. She really had a lot of faith, loving the Dharma. She was really having a joy, a heart of generosity, and cooking for all the yogis. There were many neutral moments. There were some loving moments. There were all kinds of things. She said about 10% of the thoughts and the moods were aversion. 10%. But without the steady, mindful awareness, we don't notice that. We fall into these assumptions that it always is like this. So notice as you're going through the days, not only with moods, but moods and thoughts are a good way to do it. People often say, you know, I had this particular habit, this is my personality, I always tend to have this loneliness. So you're feeling out, "No, no." And I, I had this joy, I looked out and there was this joy and this was. But then the loneliness I know, was just gone in the background, because I wasn't paying attention to it. But when the joy went away and I thought about it, then of course I could feel the loneliness again. And no one has said that specific thing to me. But do you hear that, that sense of this unpleasant or whatever you're identifying with, it's always here. It's underground. When you don't notice it, you're still assuming permanence, that it's always here. And we do that. So what we're saying with steady mindfulness, just letting go of the clinging to the ideas and just surrender into what's occurring now, just like this. So when the loneliness is here, it's like this. Not the stories, but how does it feel? And stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, and then it changes. It goes away. Something else arises. Stay steady and notice that. So often we don't quite notice the actual goneness of something. You know, we lean into the next thing. Okay, the loneliness is gone. Okay, that's over. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Now, what's next? And then we're all caught up in the next thing. Really notice when it's gone. Really notice you're having an experience of bliss and it goes away. Really notice that it's gone. I don't mean (laughs) just notice calmly, it's gone. Notice what comes next. Something else begins. When we really stay steady, we can't hide from the ephemeral changing nature of things. Notice how conditions change and affect the experience we're having. Notice how you feel emotionally might affect how the breath comes and goes. Notice, as many people say, notice how the weather might have an effect on your mood. But we don't tend to just see. It's all changing conditions like the the bulb growing, you know, with the sun and the water. We think, what's the matter with me? I was in such a good mood yesterday and it rained a little bit and now I feel like crap. What's the matter with me? Why can't I stay steady? Why can't I stay, you know, in this open, loving space? Isn't that what I'm here for, to always be open and loving? Good luck. It'd be nice but the weather changed and your the barometer dropped and you got a headache and now you're you know in an aversive mood that's how it is now notice it coming together notice the conditions coming together notice how they change and notice when the aversion's gone it's gone don't assume it's hiding underground it's gone really notice what's here now and staying really steady with it we can't hide from it <laughs> this is silly but this is where i really saw this one time i was I was eating on a retreat. And you know, eating is really interesting. I think when you're really mindful of all that goes on in eating, for one thing, how many chews is it while the food still tastes good? Not many. One chew, two chews, and a blah, 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 you know. And that's why we're going for the next fork load before we even finish, because it stopped tasting good. But that's another thing. That's a whole other talk. So I was being really quite aware. And feeling the sensations and watching it go down the throat and then feeling the sensations when it suddenly hit me. Oh, the, the food in the mouth was the food. This sensations was just sensations. It was a thought in my mind calling these sensations the food that was giving the sense of permanence, of unchanging. It was a completely different experience. Sensations in this area was very different from chewing and feeling the thing, the thing. But the mind says, oh no, this is the food and now it's that. And then I visualize, you know, the esophagus or whatever. We create the unreal by excess of imagination. <laughs> What's really happening? Sensations, that food was so gone. You know, go back to your mouth and see, there's no food there, it's gone, you know. <laughs> it seems silly, but, you know, we're so into the next thing that we don't give ourselves time to notice. So maybe, you know, ways you can play with it, you know, on the retreat. Just give yourself time to notice. In, in activities, see if as soon as you eat one bite you're shoveling in the next, give it a little bit space. Or as soon as you finish eating you jump up to go do the next thing, Give it a little bit space. Just let something end. Or notice how the mind jumps into the next thing, but notice that's what's happening. Notice when you're assuming permanence, whenever we think this is what's going to happen, or we assume we know what's going to happen next. The bell rings and we all come in here. It's amazing that most of the time that works. It is amazing. And so, So just... Bring in that Ajahn Sha, okay, this is uncertain. This is uncertain. For me, it feels like really great renunciation when I'm on a retreat. I mean, off retreat too, but on a retreat, you can notice it. The difference between when I'm just really present with whatever's happening in this moment, or when I'm walking around or sitting really um, living in the constructed world of thought, of whatever's going on. And, and not that thought should stop, but when we're really living in that world. And the great renunciation is to just simply, just simply let those thoughts hang there in space, <coughs> just come out of living in that constructed world, and just drop with total surrender and presence just into the reality of this moment. It's like this now just feeling the sensations of the lifting or the, the coolness of the, of the rice when you're chewing, whatever it is, that complete coming into the present moment, the renunciation of all the stories and the thoughts just for that moment. Ah, peace. Not needing somewhere to rest, but the resting at ease in whatever's arising. There is resting at ease. It's just in this moment. We can't hold it. We can't keep it. We can't keep it going. But when we're not trying to make something to rest in whatever is occurring right now, this is the place that total ease of totality of presence is possible. So just just playing as you go through the days. Noticing when you're assuming permanence. Notice when you're not. Notice when something's gone and you think, oh, but it's going to wait. How is it right now? Shh. Just drop into that. Just drop into that. And yes, some of the time we do open to that fragility, you know, that being in the pre trembling of a house that falls. And because we're not completely awakened, sometimes we're going to fall into some fear or some resistance or whatever. That's fine. That's just the habits of the mind and heart. We can be with that too when we really start to have some, or continue to deepen our confidence in our perception of change, of impermanence, we get much less afraid of life, of change, because we know this is, this is how it is. This is all there is. It's not, it doesn't take us into, at least my experience, it doesn't take us into a kind of, well, who cares, disconnect, it's all changing to hell with it all, you know. It actually opens, I think, into the the potential to, to really appreciate the wonder and the mystery. And just, it's just this. It's so amazing. And then now it's this. We don't need to make it anything in particular. Somehow this moment is everything. I just want to end with a poem I really like from Hafiz, a, a Persian Sufi poet. Deepening the wonder... Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks And as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world. Because our marriage, with the cruel beauty of time and space, Cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. So, thank you. Let's just sit quietly a moment. Thank you.